This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get back. Um, I am Nick Cervati. I am a cardiac ICU pharmacist at UMass and program director there for the cardiology program. And uh, while Lance took us below the bundle, I'm going to take us above. Uh, we're going to be talking about adenosine versus calcium channel blockers uh, for the use in, in SVT today. I have nothing to disclose for this presentation. We're going to go through some current guideline recommendations for the treatment of paroxysmal SVT, recognize why uh, we have other options than adenosine out there as our first-line pharmacologic therapy, go through some of the current available evidence for calcium channel blockers, um, and then discuss scenarios when maybe not to use either agent. So, you know, really, SVT is an umbrella term. Um, it quite literally translates to above the ventricles, and it refers to any arrhythmia that originates above the bundle of HIS. Um, I think it's often synonymous with AVNRT or atrioventricular nodal reentrant tachycardia, which accounts for about more than 60% of SVTs in the general population. But technically, it encompasses a whole host uh, of arrhythmias, AVNRT, as well as uh, AV reentry tachycardia, such as the kind of the well-known Wolf-Parkinson's-White syndrome, uh, where we have an accessory pathway outside of the AV node that's present, um, can also include AFib, A-flutter, and, and multifocal atrial tachycardia. But for the rest of today, I want you to kind of think of, uh, you know, SVT as, as being intended as AVNRT. It's a common arrhythmia with a prevalence of about three uh, per 1,000 adults and an incidence, uh, an annual incidence of 36 per 100,000 people. Um, and it does have female predominance, twice as likely uh, to develop compared to males. Um, and it's the most common cause of, of symptomatic palpitations in patients with no structural heart disease. I think going through the full patho of all of our kind of SVTs uh, is probably beyond today. But AV nodal tissue uh, is really made of kind of a slow and a fast pathway, uh, with the fast actually having this longer refractory period um, or that recovery period where, where you can't, impulses can't pass through. So in some situation where you have a premature beat uh, and it hits that AV node during that longer refractory period of the slow pathway, or excuse me, of the fast pathway, it's going to conduct down the slow pathway. And by the time it reaches where they meet back up together, uh, the fast pathway is likely recovered, and what you can end up having is a, an impulse that's sent back up through the AV node, uh, circling around and around and around in this reentrant beat, uh, sending impulses down, uh, you know, what is the normal ventricular conduction. Um, and so that's the key there. When you have that normal ventricular conduction, you have a narrow complex. Your P waves are usually undetectable. Um, you have almost simultaneous activation of the atria and the ventricles. Your QRS complex should be narrow. Uh, in most cases, so less than three little boxes or kind of 120 milliseconds, because again, these are usually structurally, uh, structural, no structural heart disease, excuse me, and that uh, you have normal ventricular conduction. So our treatment really revolves around disrupting kind of the cycles of refractory pathways uh, that result in this reentry uh, within and around the, the AV nodal tissue. So Real quick, we'll get kind of unstable patients out of the way for the rest of this talk. We'll, we'll focus on like stable patients. But uh, for hemodynamically stable patients or unstable patients, 
between all of the guidelines, uh, the American cardiology uh, guidelines, the European guidelines, and the ACLS guidelines, they all have a class one recommendation uh, for synchronized cardioversion. Do they give a great definition? No, they don't. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's documented ischemic chest pain. If a patient's altered or showing other signs of shock, that's kind of their definition of unstable. For the patient who is hemodynamically stable, um, you know, it is uh, the first line therapy, if possible, is vagal maneuvers. Uh, so it's a class one recommendation. And I will say this between all three guidelines across the world, they're all pretty consistent in their recommendations. We know that in 2015, we had the REVERT trial, uh, looked at you know, just over 400 patients in EDs across England, randomized them to the standard Valsalva. Uh, essentially, in this trial, they blew into a tube to kind of meet 40 millimeters of mercury, which uh, you know, you, we can do in, in standard practice with just a 10 cc syringe uh, with enough force. They modified that technique, uh, taking the patient from a semi-recumbent position, lifting their legs up and laying them down for another 15 seconds, and then bringing them back up. Um, and what they found was that after that one minute, conversion to return to normal sinus rhythm was significantly higher with a number needed to treat of only three. Uh, and antiarrhythmic use after the vagal maneuver was also lower. Uh, adenosine use was reduced by 28%. And there were zero serious adver adverse events. So again, this is a classroom recommendation because it's simple, it's safe, it's free, and we really should be attempting to do the modified Valsalva. How about stable uh, after vagal maneuvers? We know that even with that modified technique, success rate was only at 40%, so we usually have to do something else. Um, and the guidelines currently list adenosine as a class one recommendation and have since the early 90s. Um, so all three giving it a class one recommendation. So adenosine, what is adenosine? The way it works is it hyper hyperpolarizes the membrane potential by activating uh, these channels, right? And so we end up having, let me just pull this up here. A decrease in your resting membrane potential. And with that reduction in membrane potential, uh, you get a reduction in, in action potential duration and thus the refractory period um, uh, overall. And, oh, and in the end, adenosine also reduces action potential duration and the refractory period of atrial tissue surrounding the node. Uh, it's common doses uh, for adenosine, usually six milligrams, um, upwards of 12 milligrams for two repeated doses. Although in certain scenarios, we may need higher doses. Uh, and in certain considerations for lower doses, so heart transplant recipients who are denervated, uh, if you have central access, uh, you could consider starting off with a lower dose of three milligrams, uh, maybe just as effective and, and heart transplant patients are generally more sensitive to adenosine. It has an incredibly fast half-life uh, as it gets uh, taken up into those uh, erythrocytes and, and is metabolized quickly. So we know that that complicates administration and, and is a, a challenge with adenosine. So some issues with adenosine. Uh, your recent caffeine use, there was a study in 2010 that looked at caffeine, which is you know, a competitive adenosine receptor blocker. Uh, ingestion within four hours reduced the odds of, of termination of your AVNRT. Uh, so, you know, it was reasonable to dose in that scenario with maybe 12 milligrams to start escalating dose to 18 milligrams instead of starting off at six. I think the biggest challenge that we all think about is its administration. We need a healthy adenosine literally reach the heart before it's metabolized. Uh, traditionally, you know, you might push this uh, with, with a stopcock, kind of have the nurse switch over to, to the flush. But this isn't foolproof. We know that, you know, there can be fumbling, there can be issues. Uh, if people aren't doing this often, there's also concerns there. Um, so instead, what you could do is, is go with a single syringe technique. 
So kind of draw it up, draw out the adenosine and normal saline in a, in a 10 to 20 cc syringe. This was studied by some pharmacists, some fantastic pharmacists out of Advocate in Chicago, and they ended up finding conversion rates with a single, the single syringe technique were higher at 70% compared to just 40% with standard dosing administration. And all patients in the single syringe arm converted with up to three doses compared to only 70% in the single syringe. I will say there is, you know, some kind of theoretical caution in reactive airway disease. Um, you know, I, most of the cases that are out there on this and associating adenosine with bronchospasm are really in adults, particularly at higher doses, the higher doses utilized in stress tests, uh, and apart from some case reports with the standard dosing of adenosine or SVT, um, it is the dyspnea is generally short-lived, uh, resolved spontaneously, generally given that short, short half-life. And if not, you know, treatment options are readily available, whether it's oxygen, inhaled bronchodilators, whether we're throwing some steroids on board, uh, even some case reports of utilizing aminophilin for this. Um, it, is, it is extremely rare to have uh, severe uh, adverse events with this in, in regards to bronchospasm. Most of the other side effects, you know, are, are usually deemed relatively minor. They're associated with the activation of adenosine receptors throughout other vascular tissue, and so they're mostly associated with kind of vasodilation. So if we think about headaches, facial flossing, uh, you know, nausea, chest tightness, all these things are kind of associated and, and deemed kind of minor. I don't think all patients feel that way. I think certainly many patients have reported this kind of feeling, this horrific feeling, felt like I was going to die. It was, it was terrible, the worst experience of, of my life. And I think it has deterred some patients from, you know, coming back and seeking treatment, even if they know uh, what the issue is. Okay, so we have a case. Uh, it's a 33-year-old male who presents to the ED. He's complaining of palpitations and shortness of breath since yesterday morning, uh, just shy of 24 hours now. Uh, CT reports that he was told he had SVT in the past. He remembers it pretty well. Uh, and a 12 lead today shows a regular and narrow complex tachycardia uh, with a rate of 216. Awesome, awesome. I'll give it a minute. Looks like you guys are all answering. Looking for assistance, guys, in administration of adenosine. Uh, after vagal maneuvers were attempted and have failed. What are some things to consider? It looks like most of you guys got this. I agree. All of the above, I think it's, it's reasonable to go through how were those vagal maneuvers performed? Did they attempt that modified Valsalva technique? Uh, does the patient have a, a history of severe reactive airway disease? Is that something maybe we should tailor therapies away from adenosine if possible? Uh, other uh, past medical history to review? Uh, has there been any therapies that have worked in the past for the patient? Can we repeat prior successes? Uh, and obviously, our, our first decision point is how hemodynamically stable they are. So if adenosine fails, the guidelines recommend that is the point where you could consider an IV calcium channel blocker, specifically diltiazone for apamil. Uh, they give this a class 2A recommendation across the board. So where does this come from? Well, calcium channel blockers, specifically your non-dihydropene agents, uh, that, are, that are a bit more uh, cardio-selective in that regard compared to standard dihydropyridines. You have, oops, sorry, let me close that. You have uh, calcium channel blockade, right, working on your, and inhibiting your L-type calcium channels, and in turn, in, in your AV nodal action potential, decreasing the conduction velocity and prolonging repolarization within the AV node. Uh, onset, you know, usually within five to six minutes for both agents, 
uh, with the duration a little bit longer for, for, for rapamil. You'll see kind of two dosing schemes here. And this is from, you know, our standard dosing of, of 2.5 to 5 milligram uh, push dosing for both for rapamil and diltiazem compared to something that came out of a trial in 2009 for, for uh, a longer and slow infusions. Lim and colleagues in 2009 put together a trial looking at slow infusions up to either a max dose or a conversion. We'll talk a little bit about more in a bit. All right. So the most recent update to a Cochrane review was in 2017. Uh, they had lost funding along the way from the first iteration of this in 2006, but they had, uh, you know, reviewed basic, basically studies that had patients of any age uh, within 24 hours of onset and had confirmed diagnosis via 12 lead. Uh, they did exclude patients who had SVT, SVT induced in the, in the EP lab. And so they took studies from, there were eight studies in the original Cochrane Review in 2006, but three of those actually had and included patients that had induced SVT in the EP lab. So after removing those, they identified two new studies uh, and had a total of seven randomized controlled trials to include uh, that had a direct comparison of any IV calcium channel blocker compared to adenosine at any dose or infusion rate of either. So these are kind of some of the outcomes they were looking at. Major adverse events were defined as a cardiac arrest, uh, prolonged hypotension if a patient had uh, symptomatic bradycardia uh, that ended up requiring treatments, um, and any kind of acute uh, cardiac failure. But looking at their primary outcome of reversion to sinus rhythm, all seven studies that they included reported on this, a total of 600 patients. Um, and conversion rates were, were similar between the two groups at about 90% compared to 93%. Confidence interval there crossing one uh, and, and relatively uh, no difference in efficacy between the two agents. In terms of major adverse events where uh, this was reported, which is only in three studies, only 306 patients total for this meta-analysis, uh, the, the reported hypotension within two hours post-infusion only occurred in one patient with calcium channel blockers. Um, and again, uh, you know, the, the authors did comments, obviously, this is a low quality of evidence between the three studies that were reported. And I will say that two of the three trials that reported had specifically excluded patients with a systolic of less than 90 at enrollment. I think we would probably deem those patients as hemodynamically unstable, although we don't have a set definition of that. Um, but they were excluded, and so they chose, in that regard, patients that may have tolerated the calcium channel blockers better than expected. For the secondary outcomes, unfortunately, none of the trials included reported on length of stay, or importantly, I think, patient satisfaction. So kind of going through and making a tailored therapy for the patients, that just was not included. Uh, for terms of rate of relapse within two hours, four studies reported on this, uh, over 350 patients included. Again, no significant difference between the two. Rate of relapse a little bit higher with adenosine uh, numerically, and this was kind of a theoretical uh, benefit that we may have thought we'd see with calcium channel blockers given the longer duration of action compared to that very quick half-life and metabolism of adenosine, but didn't seem to entirely play out. Overall, for your minor side effects and what was reported, if we look at chest tightness as a, as a commonly reported side effect uh, in, a, in just uh, over 11% of patients in the adenosine group, no reports in the calcium channel blocker group. As expected, one study did report flushing events, and you know more than half of the patients that received adenosine reported flushing, uh, while none of none of the calcium channel blocker patients did. 
So Lim and colleagues, this is one of the two new studies that was included in that Cochrane review. Uh, they looked at slow infusion of calcium channel blockers and, and a hopeful means to mitigate any risk of developing prolonged hypotension after infusion. Um, so they, they prospectively randomized patients either adenosine in your standard dosing, uh, not in a single syringe fashion, so just six milligrams followed by a 10 cc push, uh, repeating with up to 12. And then uh, cal uh, calcium channel blockers, they included both rapamil and diltiazem, uh, with the rates being the one milligram per minute, going all the way up to 20 milligrams per rapamil or stopping if the patient converted, and two and a half milligrams a minute per diltiazem up to a max of 50 milligrams. If the SVT had not converted by the end of the infusion, patients were crossed over to the opposite group. And I will say in the Cochrane review that looked at these overall results, they did not count the results after crossover, but instead only counted them as initial treatment failure. Um, and so they had a success rate of 98% with either of the calcium channel blockers and around 87% with adenosine. This was statistically significant. Uh, the dose to convert more than three-fourths three of the patients was around, you know, 18 milligrams of diltiazem, which if we think about the standard dosing for a 70 kilo patient, it's about 0.25 mg per kg. So it works out pretty nicely in that fashion. Uh, as expected, though, the time to conversion was a bit longer with calcium channel blockers compared to adenosine, uh, working pretty quickly and taking about six minutes for, for either calcium channel blocker to take effect. If we look at baseline systolic blood pressure uh, before the slow infusion and after, uh, we can see here uh, you have definitely some, uh, the slow infusion mitigated the risk of developing severe hypotension overall, which the, the authors defined as a stock of, of 90 or lower, only occurring in one patient uh, compared to none in the adenosine group. Um, and so it's a potential that it, if it's possible uh, to utilize slow infusion, it, it might be reasonable to and maybe this is an opportunity. Um, I know that we don't have it built into our smart pump, so it's not something that's done regularly, and we're often using just the bolus doses. There was a poster presented, so fair warning, there are limitations of plenty to this. I don't have full results to speak to. Um, this was a poster presented at last year's AHA conference. They prospectively randomized uh, just over 50 patients to either diltiazem in the bolus dosing fashion or adenosine uh, at six milligrams at a starting dose. Um, followed by continuous infusion of DILT if there was no conversion. Uh, they found a 100% you know, success rate with utilizing diltiazem bolus dosing uh, compared to only 77% with adenosine, which is, is lower than uh, you know, mostly reported conversion rates for adenosine. Um, they also noted that the mean change in blood pressure was not significantly different, nor was there a significant difference in adverse events. But given that this was a poster um, and I, I don't have full results to kind of tell you what those changes in blood pressures or adverse events were kind of defined as. Um, you know, I think in terms of calcium channel blockers and when to avoid, it's, it's pretty crucial to avoid this in patients with left ventricular dysfunction or reduced ejection fraction. Uh, patients who you think are, are shocky, you know, we obviously should be considering if they're dynamically stable or not and likely should be cardioverted. Um, and if they have other signs of shock to be considering. Um, if a patient presents already taking, uh, you know, pretty decent doses of, of a beta blocker or other uh, calcium channel blockers and AV nodal agents, it, it might be a consideration to avoid calcium channel blockers and, and lend you towards the adenosine track. Um, you know, I think with adenosine, we could argue back and forth about the risk of utilizing this in patients with reactive airway disease. Uh, considering higher doses in patients with recent caffeine use, if you are going to utilize adenosine, 
Um, you know, and, and maybe just considering the patient's prior history, have they had, uh, you know, concerns and, and have had terrible times with adenosine in the past, it might be a reason to consider that and tailor therapy for kind of patient's preference. Um, you know, avoiding uh, these in pre-excited AFib, right, where you have that accessory pathway that if you block uh, and, and inhibit uh, the AV node, you kind of make that accessory pathway the main pathway and, and can precipitate ventricular arrhythmias in that regard uh, with either agent. Something maybe on the horizon, um, a, a tripamil or an intranasal calcium channel blocker. Uh, so this is a novel non-dihydropyridine that's, that's being uh, designed really to be self-administered uh, and also short-acting uh, with hopes to reduce that risk of, of prolonged hypotension after the fact. Um, so far, they've just had a phase two trial they published in 2018, so maybe this is something to come, and I'm, I'm sure with it will be a, a significant cost. Um, time to conversion was relatively quick, uh, and, and the drop in blood pressure that they noted was really only seen with the highest dose. So we'll see where that goes. They're actively enrolling in phase three trials uh, currently. So back to the case. Um, you know, you guys are inquiring what happens, why did you, you take so long to come in? You knew that this has happened before, um, and, and the patient kind of tells you that they were afraid to come in um, and that they had a terrible experience last time. Uh, realizing that this was adenosine, you're kind of going through the vitals. Um, patient looks hemodynamically stable, and so you're discovering he's also has a history of asthma, uh, and he's been continuously taking his albuterol inhaler uh, for the last 24 hours, likely due to the SVT. Uh, but might be might be a point of concern. So, which therapy would you guys use? Would you guys go right to cardio version? Are you giving adenosine? How are you giving adenosine? All right, I'm going to keep going and the poll. Share those results. Yeah, I think you know. I don't know if I would necessarily go directly to cardio version. Looks like some of you selected that. I think this patient's pretty stable at this point. They've only failed vagal maneuvers at this point, so you know maybe trying either agent is reasonable. I'd say if I were to select adenosine in this case, I'm definitely going to go for that single syringe, um, and with the possibility of that being a more effective administrative uh, strategy. Um, and then you know I think in this case, maybe given his severe uh, reactive airway disease in the past, his his horrible experience with adenosine that kind of delayed him coming in for care, I, I think I agree with the most of you. About 70% of you put still ties them, um, and, I, and I think, honestly, I, either dose is a reasonable option. Uh, if you had the ability to do the inflow infusion, great, uh, if you can wait for that to be made and mixed up. Um, but otherwise, I think the, the initial bolus dose of 0.25 uh, milligrams per kilo lines up with, with the average dose that the slow infusion needed uh, in most patients in, in the limb trial, so reasonable to go there. So what are some reasons to avoid calcium channel blockers? I'm going to keep going just to try to keep everyone on time. So it looks like overall, um, most of you put either presenting on or already receiving other AV nodal blocking agents or patients with a reduced EF and, and poor LV function. And I totally agree. I think either of those choices uh, are reasonable and what we should be going with. But some take-home points. Guideline recommendations still maintain adenosine as, as first line. Um, you know, I, I think that there is room for uh, diltiazem and farapamil to fit in there. They seemingly are equally efficacious. Uh, you know, if utilized at correct doses and, and maybe even utilizing slow infusion, it's unlikely to cause hypotension, really associated with, with far fewer of those minor adverse events, although they may not be so minor to the patients. 
Um, and so the devil's in the details. Finding the perfect patient and identifying and tailoring the therapies to them is key. And we thank you, Nick, for, for coming on. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. <laughs> Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there. Perfect, 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 perfect.